27, go private life, but though fortune has made me great, she has not made me proud, and I shall be always happy to shake hands with a friend when I meet him. At the conclusion of this pathetic address, loud cheers, mingled with tears and sighs, arose from the audience, one half of whom sunk into the arms of the other half, and were borne out of the house in a fainting state, and thus terminated this imposing ceremony, which will be long remembered with delight by every lover of a card, to the committee of the dramatic authors, English Opera House, Mr. Levy, of Holywell Street, perceiving that his neighbor Jacob Faithful Spars, entitled, The Cloak and Bonnet, has not given general satisfaction, begs respectfully to offer to the notice of the committee, his large and carefully assorted stock of second-hand wearing apparel, from which he will undertake to supply any number of dramas that may be required, at a moment's notice, Mr. L has at present on hand the following dramatic pieces, which he can strongly recommend to the public, 1, The Dressing Gown and Slippers, a fashionable comedy, sweet for a genteel neighborhood, 2, The Breeches and Gators, a domestic drama, a misfit at the Adelphi, 3, The Wig and Wig Box, a broad farce, made to fit little Keeley or anybody else, 4, The Smoth Frock and High Lows, a tragedy in humble life, with a terrific denouement, the above will be found to be manufactured out of the best materials, and while worthy the attention of those gentlemen who have so nobly come forward to rescue the stage from its present degraded position, the money market, the scarcity of money is frightful, as much as a hundred percent, to be paid in advance, has been asked upon bills, but we have not yet heard of anyone having given it, there was an immense run for gold, but no one got any, and the whole of the transactions of the day were done in copper, an influential party created some sensation by coming into the market late in the afternoon, just before the close of business, with half a crown, but it was found, on inquiry, to be a bad one, it is expected that if the dearth of money continues another week, buttons must be resorted to, a party, whose transactions are known to be large, succeeded in settling his account with the bulls, by means of postage stamps, an arrangement of which the bears will probably take advantage. A large capitalist in the course of the day attempted to change the direction things had taken, by throwing an immense quantity of paper into the market, but as no one seemed disposed to have anything to do with it, it blew over. The parties to the Dutch loan are much irritated at being asked to take their dividends in butter, but, after the insane attempt to get rid of the Spanish arrears by cigars, which, it is well known, ended in smoke, we do not think the Dutch project will be proceeded with theatrical intelligence by the reporter of the Observer, the mysterious and melodramatic silence which Mr. C. Matthews promised to observe as to his intentions in regard to the present season, has at length been broken. On Monday last, September the 6th, Covent Garden Theatre opened to admit a most brilliant audience. Amongst the company we noticed Madame Vestries, Mr. Oxbury, Mr. Harley, Miss Rainsforth, and several other distinguished artists, it would seem from the substitution of Mr. Oxbury for Mr. Keeley, that the former gentleman is engaged to take the place of the latter. Whispers are afloat that, in consequence, one of the most important scenes in the play is to be omitted, though of little interest to the audience. It was of the highest importance to the gentleman whose task it has hitherto been to perform the parts of Quince, Bottom, and Flute. We, who are conversant with all the mysteries of the flat side of the green curtain, beg to assure our readers, that the punch scene hath taken wing, and that the dressing room of the above-named characters will no longer be redolent of the fumes of compounded bowls. We may here remark that, 
had our hint of last season been attended to, the punch would have still been continued, Mr. Harley would not consent to have the flies picked out of the sugar, rumor is busy with the suggestion that for this reason, and this only, Keeley seceded from the establishment, we think it exceedingly unwise in the management not to have secured the services of Madame Corsiret for the millinery department, Mr. Wilson still supplies the wigs, we have not as yet been able to ascertain to whom the swords have been consigned, Mr. Engdon's assistant superintends the blue fire and thunder, but it has not transpired who works the traps, with such powerful auxiliaries, we can promise Mr. C. Matthews a prosperous season, the and the Honorable, quote Will, on that young servant made my heart its live string stakes, quite safe, cries Dick, don't be afraid she pays for all she breaks, providing for evil days, the iniquities of the Tories having become proverbial, the House of Lords, with that consideration for the welfare of the country, and care for the morals of the people, which had ever characterized the compeers of the Lord Coventry, had brought in a bill for the creation of two vice-chancellors, Broom foolishly proposed an amendment, considering one to be sufficient, but found himself in a singular minority when the house in the Egyptian room of the British Museum is a statue of the deity Ibis, between two mummies, this attracted the attention of Sithorpe, as he lounged through the room the other day with a companion, why, said his friend, is that statue placed between the other two, to preserve it to be sure, replied the keenly witted Sid, you know the old saying teaches us, in medio tutis amusitis, punches theater, the life and death of James Dawson, mercy on us, what a coat of morality what a conglomeration of plots political, social, and domestic what an exemplar of vice punished and virtue rewarded is the Newgate calendar, and Newgate itself, what tales might it not relate, if its stones could speak, had its fetters the gift of tongues, but these need not be so gifted, the proprietor of the Victoria Theatre supplies the deficiency, the dramatic edition of Old Bailey experience he is bringing out on each successive Monday, will soon be complete, and when at Island Juvenile Jack Shepards and Incipient Turpins may complete their education at the moderate charge of sixpence per week, the intellectualization of the people must not be neglected, the gallery of the Victoria invites to its instructive benches the young, whose wicked parents have neglected their education the ignorant, who know nothing of the science of highway robbery, or the more delicate operations of picking pockets. National education is the sole aim of the soul of money is no object, but errand boys and apprentices must take their Monday night's lessons, even if they rob the till. By this means an endless chain of subjects will be woven, of which the Victoria itself supplies the links. The Newgate calendar will never be exhausted, and the cause of morality and melodrama continue to run a triumphant career. The leaf of the Newgate calendar, torn out last Monday for the delectation and instruction of the Victoria audience, was the life and death of James Dawson, a gentleman rebel, who was very properly hanged in 1746. The arrangement of incidents in this piece was evidently an appeal to the ingenuity of the audience. Our own penetration failed, however, in unraveling the plot. There was a drunken, gaming, dissipated student of Street John's, Cambridge a friend in a slouched hat and an immense pair of jackboots, and a lady who delicately invites her lover the hero to a private interview and a cold collation. There is something about a 500-pound note and a gambling table a heavy throw of the dice, and a heavier speech on the vices of gaming, by a likeness of the portrait of Dr. Dilworth that adorns the spelling books. The hero rushes off in a state of distraction and is followed by the jackboots in pursuit, the enormous strides of which leave the pursuit but little chance, though he has got a good start, 
at another time two gentlemen appear in kilts, who pass their time in a long dialogue, the purport of which we were unable to catch, for they were conversing in stage scotch. A man then comes forward bearing a clever resemblance to the figurehead of a snuff shop, and after a few words with about a dozen companions, the entire body proceed to fight a battle, which is immediately done behind the scenes, by four pistols, a crash, and the double drummer, whose combined efforts present us with a representation of as the bills kindly inform us the Battle of Cologne. The hero is taken prisoner, but the villain is shot, and his jack boots are cut off in their prime. James Dawson is not dispatched so quickly, he takes a great deal of dying, the whole of the third act being occupied by that inevitable operation. Newgate A. Stock, seen at this theater in execution, a lady in black and a state of derangement, a muffled drum, and a view of coming common, terminate the life of James Dawson, who, we have the consolation to observe, from the apathy of the audience, will not be put to the trouble of dying for more than half a dozen nights longer, before the Syncritic Society publishes its next octavo on the state of the drama, it should send a deputation to the Victoria. There they will observe the written and acted drama in the lowest stage it is possible for even their imaginations to conceive. Even Martinezzi will bear comparison with the life and death of James Dawson. The boarding school, at the boarding school established by Mr. Bernard in the Haymarket Theatre, young ladies are instructed in flirting and romping, together with the use of the eyes, at the extremely moderate charges of five and three shillings per lesson those being the prices of admission to the upper and lower departments of Mr. Webster's Academy, which is hired for the occasion by that accomplished professor of gunmanship Dale Bernard. The course of instruction was, on the opening of the seminary, as follows, the lovely pupils were first seen returning from their morning walk in double file, hearts beating and ribbons flying, for they encountered at the door of the school three yeomanry officers, the military being very civil. The eldest of the girls discharged a volley of glances, and nothing could exceed the skill and precision with which the ladies performed their eye practice, the effects of which were destructive enough to set the yeomanry in a complete flame, and being thus primed and loaded for closer engagements with their charming adversaries, they go off. The scholars then proceed to their duties in the interior of the academy, and we find them busily engaged in the study of the complete love letter writer. It is wonderful the progress they make even in one lesson the basis of it being a billet each has received from the red coats. The exercises they have to write are answers to the notes, and were found, on examination, to contain not a single error, thus proving the astonishing efficacy of the Bernardian system of Bell's letters. Meanwhile the captain, by dispatching his subalterns on special duty, leaves himself a clear field, and sets a good copy in strategetics, by disguising himself as a fruit woman, and getting into the playground for the better distribution of apples and glances, lollipops and kisses, hard bacon squeezes of the hand, the stratagem succeeds admirably, the enemy is fast giving way, under the steady fire of shells Spanish nut and kisses, thrown with great precision amongst their ranks, when the lieutenant and cornet of the troop cause a diversion by an open attack upon the fortress, and having made a practicable breach in their manners, enter without the usual formulary of summoning the governess, she, however, appears, surrounded by her staff, consisting of a teacher and a page, and the engagement becomes general, in the end, the yeomanry are rooted with great loss their hearts being made prisoners by the senior students of this Royal Military Academy, the yeomanry, not in the least dispirited by this reverse, plan a fresh attack, and hearing that reinforcements are en route, 
in the persons of the drawing, dancing, and writing masters of the boarding school, cut off their march, and obtain a second entrance into the enemy's camp, under false colors, which their accomplishments enable them to do, for the captain is a good penman, the lieutenant dances and plays the fable, and the cornet draws to admiration, especially, at a month, under such instructors the young ladies make great progress, the governess being absent to see after the imaginary daughter of a fictitious Earl of Aldgate, on her return, however, she finds her pupils in a state of great insubordination, and suspecting the teachers to be incendiaries, calls in a major of yeomanry who, and like the rest of his troop, is an ally of the lady, to put them out, the invaders, however, retreat by the window, but soon return by the door in their uniform, to assist their major in quelling the fears of the miners, and to complete the course of instruction pursued at the Haymarket Boarding School, Mr. J. Webster, as Captain Harcourt, played as well as he could, and so did Mr. Webster as Lieutenant Varley, which was very well indeed, for he cannot perform anything badly, were he to try, an Irish cornet, in the mouth of Mr. F. Vining, was bereft of his proper brogue, but this loss was the less felt, as Mr. Goth personated the English major with the ultraparary tongue. Mrs. Grostinat was a perfect governess in the hands of Mrs. Clifford, and the Hoydens she presided over exhibited true specimens of a finishing school, especially Miss P. Horton, that careful and pleasing artiste, who stamps character upon everything she does, and individuality upon everything she says. In short, all the parts in the boarding school are so well acted, that one cannot help regretting when it breaks up for the evening. The circulars issued by its proprietors announce that it will be open every night, from 10 till 11, up to the Christmas holidays. As a subject, this is a perfectly fair, nay, moral one, despite some silly opinions that have stated to the contrary. Satire, when based upon truth, is the highest province of the stage, which enables us to laugh away folly and wickedness, when they cannot be banished by direct exposure. Ladies' boarding schools form, in the mass. A gross and fearful evil, to which the Haymarket offer has cleverly awakened attention. Why they are an evil, might be easily proved, but the theatrical critique in punch is not precisely the place for a discussion on female education. Enjoyment. The Council of the Dramatic Authors Theatre enticed us from home on Monday last, by promising what as yet they have been unable to perform. Enjoyment. As usual, they obtained our company under false pretenses for if any enjoyment were afforded by their new farce, the actors had it all to themselves. It is astonishing how vain some authors are of their knowledge of any particular subject. Brewster monopolizes that of the polarization of light and kaleidoscope spore baby surfeited us with choke damps and the safety lantern the offer of enjoyment is great on the subject of cook shops, the whole production being, in fact, a dramatic lecture on the slap-bang system. Mr. Bang, the principal character, is the master of an eating house, to which establishment all the other persons in the piece belong, and all are made to display the author's practical knowledge of the internal economy of a cook shop. Endless are the jokes about sausages roast and boiled beef are cut, and come to again, for a great variety of facetiae in short, the entire stock of fun is cooked up from the bill of fare. The master gives his instructions to his cutter about working up the stale gravy with the utmost precision and the sarver out undergoes a course of instruction highly edifying to inexperienced waiters. This burletta helps to develop the plan which it is the intention of the council to follow up in their agonizing efforts to resuscitate the expiring drama. Bay. It is clear, 
mean to make the stage a vehicle for instruction. Miss Martineau wrote a novel called, Berkeley the Banker, to teach political economy that council hath produced enjoyment as an eating housekeeper's manual, complete in one act. This mode of dramatizing the various guides to trade and to service island however, to our taste, more edifying than amusing, for much of the author's learning is thrown away upon the mass of audiences, who are only waiters between the acts. They cannot appreciate the nice distinctions between buttocks and rounds. Neither does everybody perceive the wit of Joey's elegant toast. Cheap beef and two pence for the waiter. This kind of erudition like that expended upon Chinese literature and the arrow-headed hieroglyphics of Asia Minor is confined to too small a class of the public for extensive popularity. Though it may be highly amusing to the tabled hog and ham and beef interest, the chief beauty of the plot is its extreme simplicity. A half dozen words will describe it. Mr. Bank goes out for a day's enjoyment, and is disappointed. This is the head and front of the farce here is offending no more. Any person eminently gifted with patience, and anxious to give it a fair trial, cannot have a better opportunity of testing it than by spending a couple of hours in seeing that single incident drag its slow length along, and witnessing a new comedian, named Bass, roll his heavy breadth about in hard-working attempts to be droll, as a specimen of manual labor in comedy. We never saw the acting of this debutante equaled. We are happy to find that, determined to give living English dramatists a clear stage and fair play, the Council are bringing forward a series of stale translations from the French in rapid succession, the Married Rake, and Perfection, won by an offer no longer living. Both loans from the Magosin Theatral have already appeared. Fine Arts, Suffolk Street Gallery, Art Union, the members of this institution have with their usual liberality, given the use of their galleries for the exhibition of the pictures selected by the prize holders of the Art Union of London of the present year. The works chosen are 133 in number, and as they are the representatives of charming variety, it is naturally to be expected that, in most instances, the selection does not proclaim that perfect knowledge of the material from which the 133 jewel hunters have had each an opportunity of choosing, nevertheless, it is a blessed reflection and a proof of the philanthropic adaptation of society to society's means of beneficent dovetailing and union of sympathies that to every one painter who is disabled from darting suddenly into the excellencies of his profession, there are, at least, 1,000 connoisseurs having an equal degree of free heart ignorance in the matter, willing to extend a ready hand to his weekly efforts, and without whose generosity he could never place himself within the observation and patronage of the better informed in art as this lottery was formed to give an interest, indiscriminately, to the mass who compose it, the setting apart so large a sum as L300 for a prize island in our humble opinion, anything but well judged, the painter of a picture worth so high a sum needs not the assistance which the lottery affords, and although it may be urged, that someone possessing sufficient taste, but insufficient means to indulge that taste, might, perchance, obtain the high prize, it is evident that such bald reasoning is adduced only to support individual interest. The principal island consequently, inimical to those upon which the Art Union of London was founded, and, farther, it is most undeniable, that more general good, and consequent satisfaction, would arise both to the painter and the public i.e. that portion of the public whose subscriptions form the support of the undertaking, had the large prize been divided into two, four, or even six other and by no means inconsiderable ones, we are fully aware of the benefits that have been conferred and received, and that must still continue to be so, from this praiseworthy undertaking, as an observer of these things, 
we cannot withhold expressing our opinions upon any part of the system which, in honest thought, appears imperfect, or not so happily directed as it might be, but should Punch become prosy, his audience will vanish, to prevent those visitors to this exhibition, who do not profess an intimacy with the objects herein collected for their amusement, from being misled by the supposititious circumstance of the highest prize having commanded the best picture. We beg to point to their attention the following peculiarities by no means recommend other in the work selected by the most fortunate of the jewel hunters, it is catalogued, The Sleeping Beauty, by D. McLeys, are and assuredly painted with the most independent disdain for either law or reason, never has been seen so signal a failure in attempting to obtain repose by the introduction of so many sleeping figures, the appointment of parts to form the general whole, the first and last aim of every other painter, D. McLeys. R.A. has most gallantly disregarded, if there be effect, it certainly is not in the right place, or rather there is no concentration of effect, it possesses the glare of a colored print, and that too of a meretricious sort incidents there are, but no plot less effect upon the animate than the inanimate, the toilet table takes precedence of the lady the couch before the sleep or the shadow, in fact, before the substance, and as it is a sure mark of a vulgar mind to dwell upon the trifles, and lose the substantial to scan the dress, and neglect the wearer, so we opine the capabilities of D. McLeod's, R.A.R. brought into a requisition to accommodate such beholders, he has, moreover, carefully avoided any approximation to the vulgarity of flesh and blood, in his representations of humanity, and has, therefore, ingeniously sought the delicacy of Dresden China for his models, to conclude our notice, we beg to suggest the addition of a torch and a rosin box, which, with the assistance of Mr. Yates, or the Wizard of the North, would render it perfect whereas, without these delusive adjuncts, it is not recognizable in its puppet show propensities as a first-rate imitation of the last scene in a pantomime. Punch, O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1, for the week ending September 18, 1841, the air of A.P.P.L.E.B.I.D.E. Chapter I.D. has a great deal to say about someone else besides our hero. Kindness was a characteristic of Agamemnon's disposition, and it is not therefore a matter of surprise that, the month, the month, par excellence, of, all the months I.D. calendar, produced a succession of those annoyances which, in the best regulated families, are certain to be partially experienced by the masculine progenitor. O bachelors, be warned in time, let not love link you to his flowery traces and draw you into the temple of Hymen. Be not deluded by the glowing fallacies of Anacreon and Boccaccio. But remember that they were bachelors. There is nothing exhilarating in Quabble, nor enchanting in Kensington Gardens. When you are converted into a light porter of children, we have been married, and are now seventy-one, and we're a brown George. Consequently, we have experience and cool blood in our veins to excellent auxiliaries in the formation of a correct judgment in all matters connected with the heart. Our pen must have been the pinion of a wild goose, or why these continued digressions. Agamemnon's troubles commenced with the first cough of Mrs. Pilcher on the doormat. Mrs. P. was the monthly nurse, and monthly nurses always had a short cough. Whether this phenomenon arises from the obesity consequent upon armchairs and good living, or from an habitual intimation that they are present, and have not received half a crown, or a systematic declaration that the throat is dry, and would not object to a gargle of gin, and perhaps a little water, or but there is no use hunting conjecture when you are all but certain of not catching it. Mrs. Pilcher was, the moral of a nurse, she was about forty-eight and had, according to her own account, 
been the mother of 18 lovely babes, born in wedlock, though her most intimate friends had never been introduced to more than one young gentleman, with a nose like a wart, and hair like a scrubbing brush, when he made his debut, he was attired in a suit of blue drugget, with the pewter order of the parish of St. Clement on his bosom, and rumor declared that he out his origin to half a crown a week, paid every Saturday, Mrs. Pilcher weighed about 13 stone, including her bundle, and a pint medicine bottle, which latter article she invariably carried in her dexter pocket, filled with a strong tincture of juniper berries, and extract of cloves, this mixture had been prescribed to her for what she called a sinkingness, which afflicted her about 10 a.m. 11 a.m. dinner, 2 p.m. 3 p.m. 4 p.m. 5 p.m. tea, 7 p.m. 8 p.m. supper, 10 p.m. and at uncertain intervals during the night, Mrs. Pilcher was a martyr to a delicate appetite, for she could never make nothing of a breakfast if she weren't coaxed with a Yarmouth bloater, a rasher of ham, or a little bit of steak done with the gravy in. Her luncheon was obliged to be a mutton chop, or a grilled bone, and a pint of porter, bread and cheese having the effect of rendering her as cross as two sticks, and as sour as were juice. Her dinner, and its satellites, tea and supper, were all required to be hot, strong, and comfortable. A peculiar hallucination under which she labored is worthy of remark. When eating, it was always her declared conviction that she never drank anything and when detected coquetting with a pint pot or a tumbler, she was equally assured that she never did eat anything after her breakfast. Mrs. Pilcher's duties never permitted her to take anything resembling continuous rest, she had therefore another prescription for an hour's doze after dinner. Mrs. Pilcher was also troubled with a stiffness of the knee joints, which never allowed her to wait upon herself. When this amiable creature had deposited herself in Columpsion's old easy chair, and, with her bundle on her knees, Gasped out her first inquiry, I hopes all's as well as can be expected. The heart of Pater Columpsion trembled in his bosom, for he felt that to this incongruous mass was to be confided the first blossom of his wedded love, and that for one month the dynasty of twenty-four, Pleasant Terrace was transferred from his hands to that of Mrs. Wadleygott, his wife's mother, and Mrs. Pilcher, the monthly nurse. There was a short struggle for supremacy between the two latter personages but an angry appeal having been made to Mrs. Applebite, by the lady, who had most the first families in this land, and, in course, knowed her business, Mrs. Wadleygott was forced to yield to Mrs. Pilcher's bundle in transit to, and Mrs. Applebite's hysterics in perspective, Mrs. Pilcher was a nursery Macaulay, and had the faculty of discovering latent beauties in very small infants, that none but doting parents ever believed. Agamemnon was an early convert to her about opinions of the heir of Applebite, who, like all other heirs of the same age, resembled a black boy boiled that island if there is any affinity between lobsters and niggers. This peculiar style of eloquence rendered her other eccentricities less objectionable, and when, upon one occasion, the mixture of juniper and cloves had disordered her head, instead of comforting her stomachic regions, she excused herself by solemnly declaring, that the brilliancy of the little darling's eyes, and his intoxicating manners, had made her feel as giddy as a goose. Columpsion and Teresa both declared her discernment was equal to her caudal, of which, by the by, she was an excellent concocter and consumer. Old John and the rest of the servants, however, had no parental string at which Mrs. Pilcher could tug, and the consequence was, that they decided that she was an insufferable bore. Old John, in particular, felt the ill effects of the air of Applebite's appearance in the family, 
and to such a degree did they interfere with his old comforts, without increasing his pecuniary resources, that he determined one morning, when taking up his master's shaving water, absolutely to give warning, for what with the morning calls, and continual ringing for glasses the perpetual communication kept up between the laundry maid and the mangle, and of which he was the circulating medium the insolence of the nurse, who had ordered him to carry five soiled never mind downstairs, all these annoyances combined, the old servant declared were too much for him, Columpsia laid his hand on John's shoulder, and pointing to some of the little evidences of paternity which had found their way even into his dormitory, said, John, think what I suffer, do not leave me, I'll raise your wages, and engage a boy to help you, but you are the only thing that reminds me of my happy bachelorhood you are the only one that can feel a feel a cobble regard, interrupted John, cobbleby, the rest is silence, for at that moment Mrs. Wadley got entered the room, gave a short scream, and went out again, the month passed, and a hackney coach, containing a bundle and the respectable Mrs. Pilcher, and see, rumbled from the door of number 24, to the infinite delight of old John the footman, Betty the housemaid, Esther the nursery maid, Susan the cook, and Agamemnon Columpsy on Applebyte the proprietor, how transitory is earthly happiness, how certain it's uncertainty, a little week had passed, and the heir of Applebyte gave notice of his intention to come into his property during an early minority, for his once happy progenitor began to entertain serious intentions of employing a coroner's jury to sit upon himself, bowing to the incessant and ear-piercing pipe of his little cherub. Vainly did he bury his head beneath the pillow, until he was suffused with perspiration the cry reached him there and then. Cold air was pumped into the bed by Mrs. Applebyte, as she rocked to and fro, 